0: And welcome to our third session of Parenting with Purpose. There are two other adult classes that are going on right now. One is for our young adults up to age 25. The Crossroads class is meeting in our East Wing. So if you fit in that category and you want to go there, that's available. And then a bunch of our adults who aren't interested in parenting. They flunked parenting or they just gave up on it or many of them are retired And so their kids are already grown. But uh, if you fit in that category uh, and you're not interested in the uh, parenting lesson, which is fine, then right out those back doors and across the hall is a class going through the book of 2 Corinthians. So this is Parenting with Purpose, and we'll pick up where we left off in just a bit. But I wanted to announce a few things that are coming up on October the 15th. So three weeks from today, uh, or excuse me, three weeks from yesterday, On Saturday the 15th at 5 o'clock is our annual hayride. Yes. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Is our annual... Sold. (laughs) You bought it, Eula. (laughs) It's our annual hayride, and for another year, that's going to be at the Mises' home, and we always have a great time there. Uh, I would encourage all of you to come. Bring your kids. They've just got a great layout uh, and setup there. Uh, for the food, uh, most of that has been signed up for, but we still have a few items that we need you to sign up for. I sent an email around with an online sign up for that. Uh, if you uh, haven't checked that email, do that. You can click on it, and then you can see what uh, is still needed. And if you don't get our emails, you can let the folks at the Information Center know before you leave today. Give them your email address, and we can put you on the list. But that's uh, three weeks from yesterday, the uh, Hayride and Bonfire. And then the week after that, on Saturday the 22nd, is our third annual Enchanted Trails of Halloween that will be here. And we had hundreds and hundreds of people come to that last year. Uh, the kids and families always have a blast with it. And I would encourage you to uh, mark that on your calendar as well, Saturday the 22nd for that. Last announcement is, in November is our next baptism, November the 20th. If you have never been baptized, then you need to be because Jesus says to. He commands that uh, of everyone who claims to be his follower. So if that's you but you've never been baptized or you don't even know what baptism is or what qualifies you to be baptized... Then uh, let uh, the folks at the information center know uh, that you are interested in checking into baptism. Doesn't mean you'll do it, but you're just interested in checking into it. They can give you the one-page application. You fill that out. They'll get it to me, and I'll contact you, and we'll go from there. All right. All right. That concludes our announcements. We want to pick up with where we left off in lesson two of the notes that everybody should have in front of you. Does everybody have a copy of the notes? Anybody need the notes? Everybody got? All right, good. Uh, Page three is lesson two, and we got further along than page three, but I want to start there just to pick up where we left off. In our Parenting with Purpose course, we have it divided into two major sections. The first, uh, you see at the top of page three, section one, is foundations for parenting. And then uh, in a few weeks, we'll make a, a transition to the process of parenting. But the lessons that we're going through now are, as the section name suggests, are foundational. Uh, They're crucial. Without them, you will not have a successful uh, parenting experience. And so uh, please pay attention today and in these coming weeks to these foundational issues. I know it's tempting to say, look, just tell me how to parent. (laughs) What do I do with my kid in this situation? What do I do in that situation? The practical issues, which are very important. But The practical issues and how you do those wisely comes out of this foundation. So please pay attention to these uh, foundational issues. And uh, uh, we saw in lesson one, the purpose for parenting is that our homes be a learning community, a sociological community, and a redemptive community. God has designed the home to be all three of those, the primary learning community for our children. It is also a sociological community where you are forced to get along with people that you didn't choose. If you have if you have children, those children didn't choose you and you didn't uh, and you didn't choose them. They didn't choose the siblings didn't choose each other and so they're forced now together to live in this microcosm of society, a sociological community. Now, people being who they are and sin being what it is, that means in that sociological setting, there are going to be conflicts, there are going to be sins that take place by you and by, and by others in your family, which get, brings you to that third purpose, a redemptive community. When, not if, that kind of thing happens, how do we react to one another? How do we speak to one another? How do we redeem what has gone wrong in the course of our relationships in the family? Well, that was lesson one. That's the purpose for the family. Lesson two, top of page three, you see, is titled Grace Spoken Here. And last week, we got all the way to page five, I believe it was, in your notes. And we looked at, page 4, you see improper communication as we speak to one another. And there are a number of ways in which we uh, can speak in improper ways. Page 4 lists uh, falsehood, obviously an improper form of communication, unspoken barriers. Top of page 5 then, unspoken expectations, unwarranted assumptions. And we left off with unedifying communication. All five of those are forms of improper ways that we interact uh, verbally with one another in the family. Well, what's the, what are the antidotes to that? What's proper communication? And proper communication you see on page, on page five. And on page five, if falsehood is one of the improper ways, well then it stands to reason that speaking the truth is the proper way to communicate with each other. And I say on page five there, this means thinking before we speak and speaking carefully. Now, we're going to say more about thoughts and their relationship to our words a little bit later today. I won't spend a lot of time on it now. Other than to say this, that it's not a matter of just managing your bad thoughts about people. (laughs) That's what we think. Thinking before you talk is. Well, I've got these bad thoughts about you, so I need to just discipline myself so they don't come out. When in fact, what you need to do is manage the thoughts so that you think properly about someone, so that you don't have to worry about it coming out. But most often, that's what we do. When we say, Think before you speak, that's what we believe as men. Be disciplined enough to not let what you're really thinking fly out. As I say, we'll talk some more about thinking in in a bit. So speak the truth means thinking before we speak and when we do speak, speaking carefully, choosing our words carefully, again, not just so that it doesn't reveal what we're really thinking so that we can avoid that, but rather choosing our words carefully so that we speak accurately, so that we speak truthfully. You remember last week we saw that speaking falsely is not just contrary to fact statements a blatant lie that A is not A Uh, it's not just a blatant lie it's saying things in exaggerated ways which aren't true you never or you always so now we speak truthfully we choose our words carefully so that they're accurate when Annie was little uh, she had a penchant for getting really down about herself and she would cry and she would tell us you know what's what's wrong and and she would say things like I'm dumb. I'm stupid. I'm ugly. And my response to her was not no you're not dumb immediately. It was not no you're not ugly, she's not dumb and she's not ugly. But that wasn't my immediate response. My immediate response is, Annie, we don't allow people to lie in this house. And she's like, what? I mean, I've told lies before, but I didn't think that was one. (laughs) But the truth, the fact is, she's lying. She's not speaking accurately about herself. And so I want to up the ante for her her to understand that the thought she has and the words that proceed from those thoughts have to be accurate thoughts, not only about other people, but about herself as well. So if you're going to say I'm stupid or I'm ugly, is that, is that accurate? And it's it's not accurate, so therefore you don't say it, and to say it then is a, is a falsehood. So that's what I mean about speaking carefully, even in what otherwise might seem like mundane things like that where we would just say oh don't say that about yourself no point out that what is being said about yourself is not is not accurate it's not truthful it's lying so this requires that we take responsibility for ourselves and refuse to deflect by blaming others again telling the truth what happened in this situation can I be honest about what occurred or do I reactively and instinctively blame the other person If I'm going to speak truthfully, it means owning what I did, honestly. Bottom of page 5, a second way that we engage in proper communication is to handle issues rather than allowing issues to fester. That was one of the improper ways we saw last week. So the opposite of that is to actually handle things. And in Ephesians 4.26 in your Bible, there's a quote there from the first part of the Bible, Psalm number 4. The psalm is called, Psalm number 4, a nighttime psalm. Because Psalm number 4 deals with issues that should be handled at the close of the day. And here's the quote. You see in quotation marks, in your anger, do not sin. That's in quotes because it's from Psalm 4. And Psalm 4 is this nighttime psalm, things that you're to handle at the end of each day. So in your anger, do not sin. And then it adds, by way of explanation, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. That is, at the close of the day before the close of the day you handle the things that have come up between you and other people and settling accounts quickly then avoids the festering, the build up and then the eventual blow up that will occur that's a command of God to handle it so when we there's a problem between us whether I'm the one who did it or I'm the one to whom it was done either way, before the end of the day unless I'm away or it's just impossible to communicate for some reason, then before the end of the day, I want to get that squared away with my children, with my spouse, with whomever. Top of page 6 speaks to that. In Matthew chapter 5, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift. First go and be reconciled and then come and offer your gift. Now, so important is this to Jesus, this is Jesus saying this, That he's saying, I don't want your worship. Think about how important that is. You're offering your gift at the altar. That is, you're at church. You're worshiping, but I don't want your worship. I want you to get things right on a horizontal level before you come in here and worship to me on a vertical level. So go and get that right. Settle accounts quickly. Thirdly, speak and make your expectations known and make those expectations known and ensure that they are that they are biblical that is we must analyze our expectations of our children of our spouses and then compare them to the word of god taking care that they are based on scripture and not ourselves so what do you expect out of your spouse and where did you get that? Well, that may have come from the way you grew up. You know, if you're if you're the wife, and you, so you've got a husband, your model may be your dad. I grew up with my dad, and this is what my dad did. So I bring those expectations into the marriage that you're going to be like this. And I sometimes tell you that my dad did, whatever. Or mom always did. Men can do that to their to their wives. My mom used to. So these expectations can be from our nurture, from our, our upbringing, from our reading, from things we see on television, from things our friends have told us. And all the while, they may not be proper expectations of the other party. And for example, if you married an unbeliever, then it's not right to ask them and expect them to act like a believer. I mean, am I right? (laughs) Now, you say, okay, I know I shouldn't have married an unbeliever. Well, okay, we can agree on that, but you're married now. So now we've got to help you be Christ-like in the midst of that relationship as in any relationship. And it's not right to then come into that relationship and expect this unbeliever that you married to now become like a believer. And I've seen people do this. You know, they get married, they come into uh, the relationship. One of the parties gets religion. And now, not only do I have religion, we're all getting religion. Well, you know, it doesn't quite work that way. You don't force religion on somebody. You don't force Jesus on somebody. So having made that choice, now we have to then pray that God will move on the heart, obviously, of them and their children. We want everybody to come to Christ. But we can't force that issue. So where did you get the expectations? And are those expectations proper according to the Word of God? We have to analyze our expectations and then compare them to the Word of God, taking care that they're based on Scripture and not on ourselves and an artificial standard that we have created. Now, that can be true of our children as well, not just spouses, but children. I've got expectations of my children that they're going to achieve certain grades. All right, I'm just tell me the chapter and verse because you remember, parents, that the grading system is man made. Jesus didn't create the grading system, He didn't create the 4.0 GPA. Uh, now, I'm all for 4.0 GPAs. Um, I know some people like that, I was never one myself, but i all for doing your best. The Bible does teach that. Do your best. But it doesn't teach my kids going to be here and I've got some expectation for that that's artificially imposed on my children. They're all different. And we are we are called to appreciate those differences. If you're a sports guy, then your kid is not necessarily called to engage in all the things you loved because you're a sports guy. Now, it may turn out they love sports. But just be very careful that you're not convincing yourself they love sports because they don't want to disappoint you. And I'm telling you, it's very, very easy to do. My two girls will do stuff just because they don't want me to be disappointed. And I've learned that over the years. You know, Lainey played sports and... She had said to me more than once, you know, hey, I, I'm thinking about not playing. Are you going to be okay? With, am I going to be okay with that? Yeah, I'm fine with it. But she had this idea that I might not be because this really means a lot to daddy. Somehow I've communicated to her that this means more to me than it should. And our girls are laney Annie's more athletic. Laney is not as inclined that way. Annie likes it. and Laney not so much. They're different. So these expectations we can bring in, hear this, you can end up reliving your childhood through your children. Be very careful you're not doing that. All right, number four, just the facts. Instead of making the improper, unwarranted assumptions that we talked about last week, we are people who deal in facts. We are people who deal in truth. If we are people of the book, if we are people of scripture, if we're people of the word of God, If Jesus was right when he said to the Father, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. If the word is truth, then we're going to be people who base what we say and the assumptions we make on truth. Not unwarranted assumptions. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Well, no, you don't. But see, we make those assumptions that we can read minds. I know what's going on with you. No, you don't. The assumptions you make about somebody else have to be based on facts, an objective fact at that. We must diligently practice judging one another based solely on objective biblical criteria in thought and word and deed. First Corinthians 4, Paul says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of this saying. Do not go beyond what is written. How many times do you have conversations where you say, you know, I think this is what's going on with somebody, and you just speculate? You don't know. Not based on fact. Your kids hear you do that, then they learn to do that. We're to be people of truth and people of fact. And then, fifthly, engage in edifying communication. This requires that we speak and act in a way... Designed to build up. That's the key phrase, build up. That's what edify is, to construct, to build up. That includes words of kindness and the lost art of listening. Now let me make a book recommendation to you then at this point. In your notes at the beginning, there is a course description. And there are two pages, page I and page II. And on page II, in the bibliography of recommended reading, Under communication, there's one book listed there, War of Words by Paul Tripp. I'm recommending that book to you. We have some copies of that in the resource center, out that door and across the hall. All right, if you'll take a look then at page 7. Lesson 3. Lesson 2 was grace is spoken here. Lesson 3 now is more grace spoken here. We're continuing that lesson. In the last lesson we looked at, top of page 7, a number of factors that affect communication. We saw it's not enough to simply avoid or put off improper speech, but rather we're to practice or put on proper speech. Passivity and neutrality are sin. Therefore, we must actively pursue righteous communication. Now you have to read that slowly. But I chose the words carefully. You don't just put off. We have a requirement to put on. That means being passive or neutral is not enough. In fact, to be passive or neutral in this is sin in itself. We have to actively pursue righteous communication. Now, what do I mean by that? When we're told in Colossians chapter 3 in your Bible and Ephesians chapter 4, put off and put on, Notice it doesn't just say put off, that is stop doing the bad stuff. It goes on to say put on, that is actively do the good stuff, the right stuff. So you've got to do both. Some counselors teach something called the replacement principle. When you put off, there's not then just a vacuum, a void left there. You replace that. Within this other behavior, these other words, these other thoughts. And that's what Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 do. So it's a requirement not just to bite your tongue and not say the wrong stuff. (laughs) It's a requirement to say the right things. And failure to pursue the right things is sin. To just be passive and neutral about it is sin. So some of you have heard me say this before, but you know Jesus gave what we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. And I've pointed out that a few hundred years before Jesus was Confucius. And Confucius gave what's come to be known as the silver rule. And here's the silver rule. Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Now, he said that before Jesus. And then Jesus comes along and says, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. And many people hear those and they go, he's just plagiarizing Confucius. Those are the same thing. They're actually quite different. Because notice that what Confucius says is all negated. It's all things you don't do. Don't do to other people what you wouldn't want them to do to you. If you don't want somebody punching you in the face, don't punch people in the face. If you don't want somebody screaming at you, don't scream. But it says nothing about what you do. It's all about what you don't do. And Jesus says, do to others, positively, what you would want to be done to you. So it's not just avoid saying, avoid doing Actually, say and do the right things. One other proof of this Jesus is asked, Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, which is the greatest commandment? You remember his answer. Well, before I give, remind you of the answer, which is the greatest of the commandments? And so you start going through your head thinking the commandments uh, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You got a bunch of thou shalt nots, don't you? Lots of things you don't do, and Jesus doesn't choose any of the things you don't do. He says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul." This is the first and greatest commandment. Now, notice there's no, there aren't any nots in there. Love the Lord your God positively, actively. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commands, he says, hang everything else, the law and the prophets. These two, and I would point out, positive commands. Stuff you do. Love God and love others. So the Bible teaches a radical transformation. So that you not only don't do the wrong stuff, you replace it with the right stuff. As you then think about your home being a redemptive community and that redemption taking place through the edifying words that we are called to speak, as you think about that, dear friend, you you don't have it if you think it's just stop doing stuff. It's replace that stuff with the right things. Replace those words with the right words. That's why I say passivity and neutrality are sins in the middle of that paragraph then to the end to that end this lesson is going to expand on the final point of the one we just finished the need for having edifying communication that we positively speak words that build up that edify we're going to look at one final general rule of revela- of relationship and that is that of mutual submission at the end of this lesson and that will serve as a bridge As we begin to look at marriage in the next lesson. So we must practice edifying speech or constructive speech. Ephesians 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. But only such a word as is good for building up others. According to the need of the moment. So that it will give grace to those who hear. Now you just look at that verse there friends. And you think about how many times you and I sin. In the way we talk. Because how many. How many. Unwholesome words are supposed to come out of our mouths. None. Let no. So how many times you sin this week. Don't raise your hand. Don't give me a number. But it was a bunch. More than you can count. How many times you sin this morning. On the way to worship Jesus. Let no unwholesome. Unwholesome. Communication proceed from your mouth. Now, that word I say here, translated unwholesome, does not refer only to foul language. It's not just you flying off the handle with a blue streak. It's that. It includes that, but it's broader. The term refers to any word that tears down. The antidote to unwholesome speech is speech that's constructive or edifying. And practicing that kind of speech requires some things. One, you focus on the problem Rather than the person. If it's going to be a redemptive community in our homes, then when an issue arises, I need to focus immediately on the problem rather than on the individual. There's a Latin phrase, ad hominem. Some of you may have heard that, but when you, <laughs> hey, you'll see some ad hominem attacks tomorrow night during the presidential debate. It's Latin for to the person. Or to the man. And the idea there is that you don't attack the person's positions, you attack the person. And so we've had for decades now the what some have called the politics of personal uh, destruction, <laughs> of you just go after people rather than positions. So an ad hominem attack is that. It refers to and it refers to speech directed at the individual rather than the issue. So obviously, calling names of somebody—you're an idiot. You and then whatever. Fill in. Okay, this is ad hominem. This is to the person. It's not to. It's not to the issue. To avoid speech that's directed at the person, here's what we must do: one, think about those persons, biblically. So remember, I said earlier that we would talk a little bit more about thinking pre- preceding our words. And here I'm saying if if I'm going to talk in ways that are wholesome, then that's going to have to be preceded by thinking in right ways about the people to whom I talk. So how should I think about people? Just people in general. Just putting aside what you know about the people in your family, just people in general. What do I know biblically about people? Well, I have a couple of things listed here, A and B. They're entitled to respect. Now why? How are they made? What does the Bible say about how every human being is made? They are fearfully and wonderfully made. It says that, doesn't it? It says they are made in what? The image of God, right? So those, whatever your job is, Think about the people at your work. How do you think about them? Are they entitled to respect? Do you think about them as made in the image of God and fearfully, wonderfully made? No, they're a bunch of jerks. The punks in the mailroom, you know, these kids at school, these yahoos. I mean, if that's the way I'm thinking, then that cannot but come out in my attitude and then uh, eventually in my words as well. So I've got to discipline my thinking so that I'm thinking properly about them. And certainly, as it relates to my children, I've got to look at them from a biblical lens. They're entitled to respect. As littler people in in our care, that doesn't mean that then I'm allowed to just say to them whatever I want or do with them whatever I want. They're entitled to respect as made in the image of God and fearfully and wonderfully made. Further, remember, as you look at them and everybody else, they're unfinished products. Because that's what you are. You got your issues. I've got my issues. Here's the thing with us though. Well, yeah, I got my I mean there's issues, and then there's those people. (laughs) I've got issues, but they've got like real issues. And so we elevate ourselves above other people in the way we think about them. So think about others biblically, and that will affect your words. I have quoted for you there Jesus. I say attitude precedes action. Our words are a reflection of what we think. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When the words come out of my mouth, it is because they have been born in, they've originated in my heart. And that includes the way I think about people. So when you say disparaging things about other human beings made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, that's coming out of your heart. When you fly off and you say stuff to your family, you can't just say it slipped out. Because if it slipped out, what does that mean? It was already there. And what Jesus is saying is, is a transformed heart that thinks in ways about people so that it's not there to begin with. I don't have to bite my tongue because it's not there. So think about others biblically. Secondly, be willing to focus on yourself first. Whenever there's an issue that arises between two persons, the Bible commands that we initiate reconciliation. Now notice whether we are the offender or the offended. Did you know that? And I say in parentheses there, compare Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. Here's why I have those there. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go to him. So in that context, who did it? They're the offender. You're the offended. They sinned against you. We like that one. We like Matthew 18. Because that deals with you doing stuff to me. And me going to you and saying you did this to me. So you go and confront them. That's what Matthew 18 says. But Matthew 5 that I quoted earlier says. If you're at church and you're offering your gift. And you remember your brother has something against you. You're the offender. Leave your gift and go. Now get this. Both of them whether it's your brother has sinned against you, or you remember that your brother has something against you, either way, what does Jesus say to do? Both of them say go. Now, ideally, you know, in, 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 whenever there's a conflict, you've got two people, at least one of them has done something to sin or offend the other. Maybe both have. But in either case, if they are obeying those two passages... They both say go, whether you're the offended or the offend offender, which means you would meet, you would run into each other, coming to each other to get this straightened out. You say, wow, wouldn't that be beautiful if my kids did that, if my spouse did that? But whether they do it or not, it's still a command to you and to me. Bottom of page seven, not only is this a matter of biblical obedience, it has the very positive practical effect of initiating a focus on the problem rather than on each other. Rather than pointing the finger in opposite directions, namely at each other, this causes both parties to be pointing in the same direction. (laughs) If, If I'm willing to deal with my stuff first, then I now, instead of going like this, I'm going like this. Guess where their finger already is? So now... I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to, let's deal with my stuff. Let's deal with my problems. And so we can focus on my problems. In turn, notice that last line at the bottom of page 7. Very often, this creates a willingness in the other party to evaluate himself. Now, there's no guarantee with that. I just say that's why I say very often. But I can tell you that I've seen very often that that's the case. That in a relationship, if you have one of the parties that God has humbled that says, I am willing to be evaluated, and for you to tell me what I can do to better love you and serve you. When one party does that, it often softens the other party so that they're willing to look at their stuff. And then top of page 8, I say, be proactive rather than reactive. If we're going to focus on the problem rather than the person, then be proactive rather than reactive. This is related to the concept of. Our circle of responsibility versus our circle of concern. You've heard me give this, some of you have in the the past. Uh, It's a helpful concept to me. And the idea is this, that all of us have these two circles. One is our circle of concern. And your circle of concern includes a boatload of things. It's all sorts of things that... If you had the time and the energy and the resources and the wherewithal, you would like to jump into that issue because you're concerned about it and you'd like to take take care of it. Uh, World hunger. You know, I'm I'm concerned about that. But what can I do about world hunger? Um, You could have a whole. I'm I'm concerned about my company that I work for. I'm concerned about where they're going to be in a year. It's a legitimate area of concern. What can I do about it? If I don't run the company, if I'm not on the board. So that brings you to this other circle. The circle of responsibility. Because there's this concern I've got. And you could just put all sorts of things in there that are legitimate areas of concern. But then there's your circle of responsibility. There's the stuff that God has given you to focus on. That's a smaller circle. When I'm at work, I'm worried, I'm concerned about my company, but my responsibility is to do my job. You know, as it relates to world, as it relates to world hunger, I can, I can be responsible, a responsible steward with the money that God's entrusted to me to help those that are in need. But that's my circle of responsibility. Now, relate that to your relationships with other people. It's one thing for me to be concerned about you and your behavior. It's another thing for me to believe I'm responsible to change you. In my circle of concern, it's certainly legitimate for me to be aware of issues with you, struggles that you're having. But God has not given me the responsibility to change you. So what can I deal with? Just like at work, I can do my job, I can show up, I can try to be productive and then I'll leave the rest to God. Now in my relationship, I'm not responsible to change you but what I am responsible for is my own behavior. And that's what I say at the top of page 8. We cannot control the behavior of the other party. That's a legitimate matter of concern but we can control our own. So your spouse's or your kid's behavior... Is a legitimate area of concern, but then you've got a circle of responsibility. In the case of your spouse, they're your peer. They're equal to you, so you can't control that. In the case of even your child, as we will see in weeks ahead, you have a profound influence on that, but even with that, you can't control it, ultimately. So with all of that, I have to focus on what I can be responsible, am to be responsible for, namely myself. So number one there, unlike robots or animals, you can control your responses. See, one of the differences between humans made in the image of God and animals is that animals simply react. You show, and that's why Pavlov was able to do what he did with the dogs, right? You just train them to react to stimuli. So when these particular things happen, these particular circumstances, you can count on it, this is the way the dog is going to behave. But you're not a dog. You're not an animal. You can control your responses, unlike an animal. This means that for every stimulus, you can fashion an appropriate response. Unlike animals or robots, you have the ability to analyze a situation and respond appropriately. And you have the responsibility to do that. And some have said this word responsibility can be thought of as a compound of two things, response ability. You have the ability to respond. And you have the responsibility to respond appropriately. And then secondly, you can respond properly in a number of ways. And you see them listed there. Listening before speaking. I can choose to be kind. I can choose to apologize. I can choose to keep my promises. I can choose to forgive. So if we're going to have redemptive communities in our homes where grace is spoken, then we have to practice edifying constructive speech and then lastly and this will transition into next week's lesson we must value deference in our relationships deference that is deferring to the other party and we must practice deferring if you are selfish you don't do this If you are somebody who's set in his or her ways and you've got your likes and your dislikes and you like things to be just so, then you don't find yourself deferring very often to other people. We either go and eat where I like to go and eat or nobody's going to be happy. If you bring up another suggestion, I'm going to grill you as to the propriety of your suggestion. Why do you want to go there? There are always, and I'll tell you all the reasons why we shouldn't go there. But you need, all of us need, to practice deferring to other people, other people's likes and dislikes and their opinions. And that's because every relationship requires roles to be filled. So if in the smaller things, and by the way, that may seem like a really big thing to you, which restaurant we go to, it's actually a small thing. So within the smaller things you can defer, now in the bigger stuff, and there is bigger stuff, like submitting, placing yourself under somebody else, yikes. But every relationship requires that. The Bible speaks to these various relationships, the workplace. Is it or is it not true that in the workplace there are roles to be fulfilled? And there are people who are in charge and there are people who are under them, right? Yep. Yeah. At school, there are people who are in charge and there are people who are under them. In government, same thing. And in the home, the same thing. Now God has created roles then within within Scripture. Each of us, in order to fulfill those roles, husbands and wives and children need to be taught this. We need to, in the so-called small things, be willing to defer to others so that in this big thing, the structure of our homes, we can defer and submit as God requires. And I say, B, submission is necessary in all relationships. We're all familiar with Scripture's controversial but clear command, quote, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. And the husbands all go, man, that's why I love the Bible. But we're less familiar with the verse just prior, verse 21, that says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So how is it possible to engage in mutual submission? How is it that wives are to submit to their husbands, but then there's a sense in which husbands submit to their wives. And I'll give that to you next week. Because it's noon. So we'll pick that up there next week. And that's just a hook for you to come back next week. All right. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Your communication to us. That is completely relevant and practical. Because you wrote it. And that is because you know this world. Because you made it. And you know us because you made us. And you know our problems and you know our struggles. And so you know exactly how to teach us and how to instruct us. So thank you for the Bible. Thank you for Scripture. Thank you for your Word that teaches us about ourselves and the need to defer to one another, to submit to one another, to speak and think in particular ways. Lord, we need your aid not only to tell us, you have told us, you have told us clearly. Rightly, Lord, we need your aid to give us the ability. Because I, as a sinner, don't have it. I need your grace. We need your grace. We thank you that you are the God of grace. You're not just the God who tells us what to do and what not to do. But you're the God who gives us the grace to fulfill it. Grant us your grace then this week. As we speak and as we interact and as we think. Help us, Lord, to conform our thoughts and our words to the person of Jesus and to the commands of your word. I pray that even this week we would begin to see some positive results of that, that only you can bring about. Then, Lord, we ask you to grant us safety this week as we serve you and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.